All right, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 11 this evening. We come to this most favorite chapter of the book for good and not so good reasons, as we shall see, I trust. Shall we begin with prayer? Our Father, it is with deep thanks that we rejoice in the gift of faith. And we thank you for the object of that faith, which is not only you yourself as our Abba Father, but your ever gracious Son, your only begotten. Nor do we neglect to bless you, O Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Father and the Son. And for this gracious privilege of addressing you in your most magnificent triune names, we also humbly thank you for delivering us from bondage to this present evil age. For drawing us in that new and living way into your very presence room. The room where your son sits at your right hand. The room where the glory of your spirit surrounds your throne. The room where the just souls of men and women and children gather to adore and praise you with songs of thanksgiving forever and ever. Now as we who continue our sojourn this side of that glory throne, as we bow before your word, We ask that that very spirit who binds the Trinity together may bind our hearts to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now we want to begin this evening with a comment about the structure of this chapter. And I am seeking transitional parallelism in that first little uh, question. I put in parenthesis what transitional parallelism may mean because we haven't used this phrase before, but it is expressive of the parallelism which brings transition. How's that for a remarkable Repetition. Now, Mike, you seem to have a look of all-knowing there. Um, Are are you uh, figuring out the method to my madness or the madness to my definition? We have actually used this phrase before, 
but we haven't, we've used a, a, an equal phrase, equivalent phrase, but we haven't used this phrase before. This phrase is a little more expressive. I know you're still suffering from jet lag, Kay. Does, this, does that, does that uh, phrase there suggest anything to you that you're already familiar with? Sorry. No. Okay. okay. How about you, Ben? Uh, sorry. <laughs> All right, parallelism would mean something's parallel, right? In other words, that parallel lines are two lines, right? Okay, like railroad tracks, right? So <clears throat> parallelism would mean you're looking for two of something. And transitional would mean that it would be in one thing and transitioning to another thing. So what have we looked for to transition from one chapter to another? Hook words. Hook words. There you go. Jet lag is over. Way to go, Kent. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, the transitional parallelism is just a fancy word, way of saying hook words. And as you look at 1039 and 11.1, what hook word do you pick up? Faith, very good. We did this last week. Faith is present in the last verse of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11. And as a kind of concatenation or transitional parallelism, it is hooking the end of chapter 10 to the beginning of chapter 11. Now let's go down in the outline that you have in front of you and look, at a, look again at that phrase transitional parallelism. So you can write in parenthesis up there at the top hook words, and you may do the same thing down here at the bottom where transitional parallelism occurs again, hook words. Only we're looking now for a transitional parallelism between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Now notice I have given you a clue. <clears throat> the word or its cognate will be in verse 39 of chapter 11, and it will reappear in verse 1 of chapter 12. And what do you see? Or perhaps your translation doesn't help you. Yeah. In verse 39, New American Standard reads, And these, having gained approval, but the margin says, having obtained a testimony or a witness. So we could say, these having witnessed through their faith. And what do we find in 12.1? Okay. The great cloud of witnesses. Yes, the Greek word is the same in both places. And so now we are hooking together the witness of uh, chapter 11 to the witness of the great cloud of witnesses, obviously referring to the individuals who have been named in chapter 11 and perhaps more besides. So that we are uh, concatenating or tying together in transition the end of 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Now, going back up to uh, the first hook 
pattern, 10, 39, and 11.1, your outline uh, indicates a post-positive particle. All right, now what does that mean? It's a grammatical or literary pattern that will occur both in Greek and in Hebrew, post-positive. Positive refers to the first word in a sentence. Okay, So the first Greek word in the sentence is followed, post-positive, after the first word, is followed by a particle. Now, in this case, it's the Greek particle de, which would be transliterated in English de. In your translation, or at least in the New American Standard translation, that particle stands at the beginning of verse 39 and chapter 11, verse 1. A post-positive particle is always translated first in the sentence. All right, so this little Greek particle, de, is translated in verse 39 of chapter 10, but. And in verse 1 of chapter 11, it is translated now. Both of these lines or both of these verses possess this same post-positive particle. In other words, each of these verses, 10, 39, 11, 1, begins with a Greek word and then de. So they're exactly the same in that structural pattern, Okay, post-positive similarity. Now, the second thing that we note in 1039 and 11, 1, is the beginning of the negatives. Notice we have a negative in verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back. Notice that we also have a negative in 11.1, the conviction of things not seen. Both verses have a negative, but notice where they are located. Verse 39 has a beginning clause that contains a negative. Verse 1 of chapter 11 has an ending clause that contains a negative. In other words, it's, it is as if the author has framed these two verses by beginning with a clause that contains a not and ending a clause with a clause that contains a not, as if to bracket these two verses. Now, it's interesting that this is here because we will miss it. We will usually say, oh, well, chapter 10 is over in verse 39 and go on to chapter 11 and say we're on to something brand new. We're really not. He is tying together. He's tying it together not only with the hook words, with the Le Mocreche, but he's also tying it together with structure. He's tying it together with the particles that he's using. Now, there's one more thing that he does in order to reinforce this argument that he is bracketing or, shall we say, weaving together like crocheting. He's weaving together these two verses and, in fact, weaving together the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. And that is the sequence. The sequence of the clauses. All right, we observed in B in that outline that the beginning of the clause in 39 is with a negative. It's located at the beginning of the clause. 
But after that negative, the rest of verse 39 is a positive declaration. So we have a negative declaration, a negative clause, followed by a positive clause in verse 39. What do we have in verse 1 of chapter 11? We have just the reverse. We have a positive clause, faith is the substance of things hoped for, and followed by a negative, the evidence of things not seen. So once again, he has a very symmetrical sequence of the clauses in the verse. Now, there's much more artistry here than we can talk about right now. Uh, In the Greek text of these two verses is a masterpiece. In fact, it is a chiastic masterpiece of endings of the Greek words. It's actually a quite, it's a piece of genius. Aside from the inspiration, it's a piece of genius. So, we're just noticing a little bit of that here, but there's a lot more to uh, these two verses than uh, what I'm able to demonstrate, uh, uh, partly because uh, the, uh, what the what we might call the chiastic pattern would would take too long to unfold. It, it requires too much understanding of, of the Greek grammar and vocabulary. But you can grasp this much of it. And you can see that we have a symmetry here, which is quite regular in both 10.39 and 11.1. All right, now leaving aside the uh, concatenation of the end of 10 and beginning of 11, let's look at the broader structure, what we might call the macro structure of this 11th chapter. In verse 2, you actually have a word that we've already encountered. Now, once again, your translation may not aid you. If you have the New American Standard, you will notice that the, the, ver, the word, the verse is translated, for by it the men of old gained approval, and your margin says obtained a testimony or obtained a witness. Now, where have we had that before already this evening? Verse 39, it is exactly the same word. All right, so there's your broad inclusio for the chapter. We have this large frame from the witness of the men of old in verse 2 to the witness of those who had uh, gained approval, namely everyone in between. You see what he's done? He's placed in the bracket of the included. He's included in these individuals who are witnesses. All right, now there's one other device here, which is actually a literary device. It can also be an artistic device, and that's the anaphora. All right, now what does this word anaphora mean? Anaphora is a rhetorical or literary description of a repeated initial word or phrase. A repeated Initial word or phrase. So what is the anaphora in Hebrews 11? Robert? Okay. What jumps right out at you, Terry? Ben? By faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. It stands at the beginning of 18 verses in this chapter. 
So this repetition is a literary or rhetorical device in which he's drawing attention to faith. It's just one word. It stands at the beginning of each of the Greek verses. Pisteos, by faith, by faith, by faith. All right, any questions about that basic structure? Well, now let's take a look at faith itself. I want you to think this evening, oh yes, Scott. When you were looking at that, that, the, the beginning and end of chapter 11, and you were looking at verse 3, are you thinking... It's Mark or something. It's, yeah, yeah, if you look at the Greek text. Yeah. I, should, I should be able to tell them what it is. It's a Mark Martesa. Yeah, it, it comes from Mark which is, is the Greek word with which you get martyr. Okay, Mark you, you hear martyr in that word? Okay, we get the word martyr meaning witness. Of course, the martyrs gave witness before... Uh, they died. All right. Let's think of faith for a moment as a beautiful gem. Faith as a precious jewel. Or faith as a gleaming stone. Now, as is the case... <clears throat> with any beautiful jewel or gleaming gem, there will be many facets to that gemstone. In other words, the stone will be multifaceted. Now, what are the facets? The facets of a gemstone or a jewel are the flat surfaces on which angles have been cut in order to capture and reflect light and color. These facets are what gives the gem its sparkle, its brilliance, its luster. It's splendor, it's radiance. You hold that gemstone up to the light and it'll sparkle because the light is captured by means of the many facets that have been cut into the stone. Now, cutting facets is quite an art. But nonetheless, the goal is to draw out the lovely radiance of that stone. This is the reason, namely the fact that they have facets. This is, if you, for instance, if you take a diamond and you just excavate the diamond out of a mine in South Africa or something, it, it looks doesn't look very attractive. It doesn't look very spectacular. In fact, it looks rather dull. <clears throat> but you take it to a diamond cutter and he cuts the facets. He cuts the stone to catch the light. Then you understand how gloriously beautiful it can be. Well, the facets are the reason that gems shimmer with light, glimmer with fire, even dazzle the eye. 
All of this is made possible by the facets which are intentionally cut into the stone in order to make it glisten, to make it radiate color in dispersion, to make it scintillate with flashes of light. As you turn the stone in the light, you observe various aspects of its brilliance. And yet, it is still the same gem. It is still the same jewel, though as you turn it, it displays dazzling aspects of its beauty at different angles from different facets. Now, faith is a multifaceted gem. And we want to look further than we did at the end of our last meeting. when We talked about the forensical aspect of faith or the forensical facet of faith, if you will. We want to consider faith as having multiple facets or multiple aspects. And yet, regardless of the aspect from which we will look at faith, it is still the same thing. It is still the same unified thing, just like the stone is that unified bundle of fire and and radiance and splendor. It's still one single stone, but you're seeing riches from different angles of the facets. Now, at the end of our last session, we talked, as I said, about the forensical aspect of faith. And what did we say is the forensical aspect of faith? What does that mean to talk about the forensic or forensical aspect of faith? Ben? It's related to the law, related to justice. It has to do, what's this word forensic mean or forensical? What's this word forensical mean? What kind of an arena does it take us into? Into a legal arena, into a courtroom, okay? So, in Latin, in foro deo, in the forum of God, which means in his courtroom. All right, so faith in its forensical aspect, how does it address this? legal aspect? How does it address this courtroom scene? What is it? What is at stake here? Frank, can you tell us? Can you tell us anything about being in God's courtroom? Can you imagine yourself in God's courtroom? Okay, you're in the you're in the forum of God. Are you in trouble? You're not in trouble. Why are you not in trouble? You know who you believe. Good. Uh, Let's take who you believe out of the picture. Are you in trouble? Okay. So, in the form of God, without knowing whom we believe, we're in trouble. What kind of trouble are we in, Art? In this form of the divine justice, what kind of trouble are we in? Uh, moral trouble. Disobey the law and the punishment is death. 
We've disobeyed the law. <clears throat> okay, so we are at fault. Okay, we've got a check mark against our record. Is that the only problem that we've got? And we're also unrighteous. So we got a fault to our credit, and we've got a defect to our decredit, discredit. Now, in the form of God, because I have this positive fault, I'm going to get sentenced. How am I going to get sentenced, Art? I'm going to be declared guilty. And that means I'm going to get a penalty, meaning death, which will be the verdict, as Art pointed out to me. Thank you, Art. And what about this negative? Because I'm not righteous, what's that going to give me? Condemnation. Very good. All right. Now, with respect to the forensic aspect of faith, or the forensical aspect of uh, belief, what remedy do we need, Maureen? Faith. Right. Justified by faith. I'm justified by faith. Well, okay. That's a nice sounding word, but, but you haven't told me how it's going to deal with my problem. Here I am singing Rock of Ages, and it's, I've got to, I've got to have a double cure. It's a double cure because I've got a double ill. I've got a double sickness. This is my double sickness. This is number one sickness. This is number two sickness. That's double. That's twofold sickness. Now I got to have two medicines. If I got a double sickness, I've got to have a physician with two medicines. The life and death of Christ. The life and death of Christ. All right. So what? Tell, tell, tell me, tell me where that fits uh, on of my illness here. His righteous life in place of our unrighteousness. Okay, so and the penalty was paid when he died on the cross. Good. All right. So the cross is going to take care of number one, and the life is going to take care of number two. So my guilt and unrighteousness will be canceled and annulled, and there will be no condemnation. <clears throat> And no damnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. All right, so this is the forensical aspect of faith. And faith contributes to this? It's a channel. What do you mean it's a channel? Good. What do you mean by that? It's it's the conduit, the way that those things are brought to us. Okay, they are communicated or conducted to my soul through faith as kind of like a pipeline, but faith contributes nothing to that uh, cross and righteous life because Jesus did it all. We can sing Jesus paid it all, but we also can sing Jesus did it all. We probably ought to have a song that Jesus did it all. We do have Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's another good one. It gets the two of them together. But nonetheless, we understand that we have to have both of these for a right standing in the forum. So because you know whom you believe, you believe on his what? 
Frank? On his sacrifice? On his life. I'm sorry, on his life and on his sacrificial death. Good. So it's not just a justification by faith and, you know, that's a nice warm puppy dog feeling. It's because when you're justified by faith, the object of that is the death of Christ for your death penalty. And the object of that faith is the life of Christ for your unrighteous default. And we want to add the resurrection of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 4.25, because we want to be vindicated even as he was. In a real sense, we can say that the resurrection of Jesus is his justification. He personally is justified. Just, excuse me, just as we must be personally justified. And because he is personally justified, 1 Timothy 3.16, we stand justified in his justification. All right, so the forensical aspect of faith is one lovely, beautiful, shimmering facet of this gem that we call faith. But it's not the only facet of faith. It is imputative because it imputes Christ's righteousness. It is remissive because it takes away the penalty of our sin. And it is vindictive. I don't mean that it is vengeful. It vindicates God's righteousness and therefore constitutes us as right in God's eyes. Answers the question Job asks, how shall a man be right with God? A man can only be right with God if he stands forgiven of his sin and righteous in God's sight. If he's constituted right in God's eyes. And that can only happen if he knows whom he believes. And if the robe of the righteousness of Christ and the blood of Christ has been, has covered him over. So that when God looks at you, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ clothing you and the blood of Jesus cleansing you. Now, the second way of looking at faith is the facet of faith, which is the mystical aspect. Now, the mystical here doesn't mean the kind of esoteric or weird or, you know, outer space kind of uh, mysticism. Mystical here means spiritual. It means the spiritual aspect of faith. And this, <clears throat> this is unitive. <clears throat> what do I mean by that word unitive? The mystical aspect of faith is unitive. Ben? It's union with Christ, correct. It's union with Christ. The mystical union with Christ, which is the spiritual union with Christ. Okay, We're not physically joined to Christ, but we are spiritually united to him. Now, Paul has a phrase that he uses over and over again to point out or to indicate or underscore this unitive or mystical union with Christ. Do you know what that phrase is? Good, Mike. In Christ. 
He is in Christ or being in Christ or those who are in Christ. All right. This is a unitive spiritual aspect of faith. You are united to Christ. The analogy of a marital union, which he actually uses in Ephesians 5, is an illustration of this. The physical union of a marriage relationship is reflective of the intimacy of the spiritual union or the mystical union between Christ and the believer. This is this is definitely a gem. This is definitely a rich and splendid aspect of faith. So this aspect or facet of faith which joins us to Christ, it doesn't have any power in and of itself except to unite us to Christ. Christ is the one who brings us into that union. We are united unto him. He is united unto us spiritually and mystically. And what a blessed union it is with all the passion and ecstasy of the union that can occur in a blessed marriage. All right. So this rich facet or aspect of faith explores another dazzling side of faith in relationship to our Savior. Any questions about the mystical aspect? Now, the next one on your outline is the fiducial aspect. What's fiducial mean? Trust. Trusting. Very good, Ben. <clears throat> this is the reliant aspect. Our multifaceted gem called face has a facet of forensic relationship. It has a brilliant facet of uh, unitive relationship, and it has a aspect of reliant relationship or aspect to rely on someone to trust someone to confide in someone you see it is that shall we say outcome of the mystical union out of that mystical union you Rely upon Christ, you trust Christ, you lean upon Christ, you rest upon Christ. Just like in a marriage, you lean upon one another, you rest upon one another. Now, the Bible has a beautiful illustration of this. It actually has a beautiful picture of it. Of faith in this reliant aspect or faith in. In this facet of resting upon Christ. And where is that? In the Psalms? No. Mark? John leaned against his Savior. John leaning on Jesus' breast. What a wonderful, beautiful, glorious picture. Yes. John 13, verse 23, where at the Last Supper, the beloved disciple is leaning on Jesus' breast. He's leaning upon the heart of his Savior. He is resting his head 
upon the place of affection, demonstrating his own affection for his Lord and his Lord reciprocally cuddling his head on his breast. Now, this radiant or splendid facet of faith still does not exhaust the brilliance of this gem. Remember I said this is a multifaceted gem, just like a multifaceted diamond or multifaceted ruby. This is a multifaceted gem, this thing we called faith. And we've looked at three facets already. But we haven't defined or looked at faith the way the writer of Hebrews does. For in verse 1 of chapter 11, when he says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, the King James translation is still the best translation of this verse. Still the best. He's not talking about the forensical aspect of faith here. Is he? Do you see any forensic arena there in that aspect of faith? He's not talking about being in the court of the law. He's not talking about righteousness there. He's talking about the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That doesn't sound like forensical faith. Nor is he talking about faith in terms of mystical union, that is, being united to Christ, being in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not denying those, but you see, he's focusing on a particular aspect. He's looking at one facet. He knows the multifaceted character of faith, but he is drawing out one particular aspect or facet of faith that Paul doesn't draw out. Not in Romans 5 when he talks about the forensical aspect of faith or Galatians 2 and 3. Not in Ephesians when he talks about being in Christ. And not with John when he talks about the fiducial aspect of leaning on Jesus' breast. Well, what aspect of faith is he talking about here? He's talking about the eschatological aspect of faith. Now, you would think that I overused the word, but you notice what he says. Look at the text. Forget my word. Look at the text. What is the Bible saying to you? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you in these words? You can't make this definition into a definition of justifying faith. You can't do it. If you do it, you're not reading the text. You're making the text say what you want it to say. If you make this text say something about mystical union with Christ, then you're not reading the text. You're not reading what he wrote. You see, you're making it say something that you want it to say because you can't figure out what you mean. This definition of faith doesn't match your definition of faith. See, it doesn't match your forensic definition of faith. So, well, well, then you're going to be right and he's going to be wrong. You're going to make him say what you want him to say. You're going to make him say what Luther and Calvin say about faith, right? Well, at the Reformation, the forensic aspect of faith was crucial to the context of the debate. 
And so their eyes were fixed upon that wonderful aspect, that dazzling part of the gem. And I'm not minimizing that or ridiculing it. I'm simply saying that they didn't tell you the whole story. As rich and dazzling as that precious story is. But here is another dazzling part of the story. And it's not faith forensically construed. And it's not faith mystically construed. And it's not faith fiducially construed. It is faith eschatologically construed. Look at what he says. It is the substance of things hoped for. What you hope for. What do you hope for? Do you hope for heaven? Then this is faith drawing you into the substance of heaven. Notice the second clause. The evidence of things not seen. Do you have the evidence of that which is not seen? In other words, has faith brought you into the arena of the invisible? What is that invisible arena? Is it not the eschatological arena? Is it not the God arena? Is it not the arena that the triune God inhabits? And faith is bringing you into that invisible world. This language is the language of the future aspect of faith or faith grasping the future and bringing it to your present, bringing it to your life. The substance of things hopeful, the substance of heaven itself brought to you by the conduit of faith, Brought to you. The riches of this faith are dazzling you with the glories of the anticipation of the substantial anticipation of what you hope for in the future. Now. Now. Today. This moment. Heaven coming to your heart by faith. Now, scintillating your heart with the fire of God's very own eschatological being. His hoped for glory that you wish and long to see. Faith has brought to you a glimmer, a dazzling glimmer of that. Even now. All right, so forty years ago, as I preached this sermon, I made my own definition of faith in this eschatological aspect, and then I drove to Grand Rapids. And I discovered in nineteen seventy five the sermon notebook of Gerhardus Voss written in his own hand and took it home and transcribed it, and it was ultimately printed. And in that sermon notebook, Voss had a sermon on Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. And I printed a section of that for you, and I want you to notice that first line. 
Not so much faith in its general sense, but specifically faith in its eschatological bearings. That faith which puts one in vital contact with, that's vital, living contact with, and impels one irresistibly forward towards the unseen realities of the heavenly world. Can you imagine what joy shot through my heart when I read those lines? That what I, in my miserable scholarship had discerned from Hebrews 11 was exactly what Gerhardus Voss, greatest biblical theologian in the Reformed world, had identified. The eschatological aspect of faith in the epistle to the Hebrews. I'm not blowing smoke and I'm not inventing words and I'm not trying to dazzle you with the gems of my vocabulary. I am attempting to draw you into the text through the language that one greater than I perceived, identified, and defined. And so there you have it. Because Voss, as well as puny me, understands what God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has revealed to magnificent writer of Hebrews 11. Well, you take the gem of faith. And you look at it from these multifaceted points of view. And faith will dazzle you because this faith will draw you even more intimately and confidently into Christ Jesus. Because, of course, the substance of what you hope for is Christ himself at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Where you hope one day to bow before his footstool. And gaze into his blessed face and hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you not? Well, this passage says to you today, right now, your faith has grasped Christ in that relationship to you, in that heavenly aspect to you, in that glorified eschatological radiance that dazzles him even now, that has come to your soul by faith through this gem, which we call the conduit of heaven's riches and treasures. You see him. Now, by faith, your soul possesses him. Now, by faith, he who is future to you in terms of your destiny is present to you. He is a present possession to your soul. Look at verse 39 of chapter 10. You remember in our last meeting, I belabored the translation of that word that is translated preserving. I belabored it and said it means to it means possession. 
Because in chapter 11, he's going to talk about what the souls possess. The soul of Abel, the soul of Enoch, the soul of Noah, the soul of Abraham, the soul of Sarah, and so on and so forth. He's going to talk about what their souls possess. What do their souls possess? Their souls possess the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, because they were sons and daughters of eschatological faith. They possessed in their now the future substance of what they hoped for and the concrete evidence of what was invisible to their physical eye. So Voss confirms our definition of this facet of the rich jewel that we call faith, namely faith in its eschatological radiance. Don't you delight in the prospect of the radiance of heaven? Doesn't your heart leap with joy to think and meditate upon that as you contemplate what is revealed in Revelation 21 and 22? Isaiah 65, 66, don't you rejoice in the meditation and the thinking and the projection of that? Don't you long to be there? Faith, your faith has brought you there even now. You have the future in your present. No, not as it will fully be experienced, that is true, but you have it in measure now provisionally, richly granted to you as a jewel-like treasure. Wouldn't you rejoice in the eschatological aspect of faith? Abel did. Enoch did. Noah did. Abraham did. All the way down the line through the prophets. Don't you want to join that cloud of witnesses? Don't you see the riches of this facet of faith for your soul, for your life? All right. In its eschatological relationship, faith is transferring the heavenly futures as well as the heavenly unseens to the believer, to our soul, to our heart, to our mind. Like a huge continent pushing into the sea. As Voss indicates in that excerpt that I have printed for you, heaven pushes into our soul, pushes these future hopes now into our soul, these invisible realities now into our soul. What future hopes now pressed into our soul, possessing the vision of God now? Possessing the adoration of the Son of the Father. Now, 
possessing the breath of the Holy Spirit now. And what invisible realities now are possessed by the soul. That high priestly intercession of Christ, that is possessed by your soul now. Those good things to come that have come in Christ, those good things are possessed by your soul now. That new and living way, that new and living way of access into the very holy of holies of heaven, that is your soul possesses now by faith. And so remarkably, your soul possesses now by faith the endless life of a son of God. The endless life of the son of God is your present possession and a future destiny. Because he has said to you, I will give you everlasting life from his endless everlasting life, the gift of his future to your present. So we understand now that this unique definition of faith that it comes from Hebrews 11.1 is faith as it conducts the future to the present. By faith, heaven comes down to earth, to say it somewhat simplistically. By faith, heavenly hopes become present realities. By faith, heavenly realities, unseen to the eye of the flesh, are evidenced, yea, seen by the eye of faith. These realities are precious to the soul. Now follow me here. Follow me here. These realities are precious to the soul. They are even more real to the believing heart than what you see. Denison, you're insane. That's what the text says. They are more real than what is seen. Because faith deals in the reality of a world without end. Everything you see in this room is going to be consumed and incinerated. It will perish and disappear. It will not exist because it will be annihilated. Only the dimension of God will endure. And faith brings you into that dimension now. It is more real because it is more permanent. It is more abiding. It is more eschatologically final than anything in this world. You and I are decaying day by day, year by year. You and I are dying day by day, year by year. God in his arena does not die. And faith puts you in touch, in contact, in the power of that 
arena. But I don't live that way. No, nor do I all the time, but that is the invitation of this aspect, this eschatological aspect of it. This is the standing invitation of the God of heaven to your soul for you to perceive and believe and possess eternal things, eternal realities, unseen dramas, truths, and finalities. This present world is passing away. There is nothing that is permanent about it. Kingdoms rise and fall. Nations come and go. But the word of the Lord and the kingdom of Christ endures forever. That's the real world. Well then, you make me so heavenly minded, I'm no earthly good, Denison. Are you not witnessing like these men of old, verse 2? Is not your life a testimony? Witnessing unto God and unto the church and unto those who will give you a chance. The reason for the hope that is in you. Though the world mock or despise you, It does not treat you any differently than it treated your Lord. Who do you think you are to be any better or different than he? But he set his face steadfastly, not only to the earthly Jerusalem, but he set it steadfastly to the Jerusalem above. And from that Jerusalem, he invites you into the reality of his city. Doesn't this writer tell you that? Doesn't this Hebrews writer tell you that? Doesn't he tell you in chapter 12, verse 22, that you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem? You notice that present perfect test. You have come, not you will come. He doesn't say you will come. You will come. But he says you have come. A now, a now of a future. See what he's done again? He's made you think eschatologically. Because he wants you to rejoice in the reality of that city where Jesus sits and where that great cloud of witness surrounds his glorious throne. And where your heart is, that's where your dazzling treasure will be. Dazzling with the glory of of that lapis lazuli crystal sea and that rainbow arc around the throne of glory. Oh, you don't know about that? Read Ezekiel 1 and 2 and think, think, think about it. Picture it in your mind. Think about the reality of those colors 
and that scene and that glorious beauty. Because you haven't seen beauty. No, you haven't seen beauty until you see heaven. You've seen the beauty of the Olympics with the sun casting its rays upon them at dawn or dusk. You've seen the beauty of the Cascades. You've seen the beauty of the sound and all of the evergreens around. And you haven't seen any beauty until you have cast your mind upon what beauties have been revealed in the word about the glory of the throne of God. Set your mind on those things above. And you will be earthly useful. You will be earthly good to all around you because you will be showing them in the light of your life that you belong to an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting Lord, an everlasting life. And come, come, come to Jesus and to that city and to that life. That's the invitation that our life gives to the world. Our heavenly oriented life gives to the world. Come. Come to the eschatological arena. I have to check my watch and see if it's time for the break. It is time for the break. Any questions before you stretch your legs? All right, we'll come back in the second hour and we'll take a look at some of the individuals who demonstrate this eschatological faith. I want to give due credit to another phrase from another Dutchman, which comes out of the translation that I've suggested for verse 39 of chapter 10, faith to the possessing of the soul. And what the soul possesses is going to be outlined in the eschatological aspect of faith in chapter 11. Notice that these individuals who are listed here are possessing. Their souls are possessing. They are possessing the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. They are the blessed possessors. Now that phrase comes from Cornelius Van Til, the blessed possessors. And it perfectly encapsulates what this author is sharing or showing us, revealing to us in this chapter. What does Abel possess? What does Enoch possess? What does Noah possess as a blessed possessor? What does his soul possess? It's another reason that I'm insisting upon the better translation of that 39th verse. The word possession is the better translation of that Greek word. So... We're talking here about faith possessing these things, substance of what is hoped for, the evidence of what is not seen.
Now, it is true that faith is a gift, and we are not denying that. This eschatological aspect of faith, as with every other facet of faith, is a gift. That is clear from Ephesians 2. But when we say faith is a gift, then we must contemplate the giver of the gift. And to contemplate the giver of the gift, then we contemplate the one who determines to give. The giver determines or decides to bestow the gift. In other words, faith is an elective gift. Even the eschatological aspect of faith is an elective decision on the part of the gift giver. We are now into the arena then of the predestinating aspect of faith. And the predestinating aspect of faith is itself eschatological because it comes out of God's own mind and heart. It comes out of the mind and heart of an eschatological being. Predestination and election is an eschatological doctrine. But here we contemplate faith as the gift that God elected to give from before the foundation of the world through his determinate forecounsel and foreordination to Abel and to Enoch and to Noah and to Abraham and to Sarah, etc., down the list. We are talking about a God who determines the objects of his gifts. Else he would not be God. Else he would be just a reconstruction or re-imaging of a human like yourself who vacillates from one decision to another and whose decisions are not always permanent or established or even wise. To say that faith is a gift Faith is a gracious gift, is to say predestination and election. So don't ever start the discussion of predestination and election with predestination and election. Start the discussion with Ephesians 2. By grace have you been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. And then think about what it means to receive a gift. Considering it that way, you understand you will have no difficulty ultimately with the doctrine of predestination and election. Well, our author is not specifically talking about the elective or predestinating aspect of faith here. I bring that in because it will occur when we consider Abraham. But nonetheless, I want to add to that aspect of faith the fact that God has determined to give it. It is under his sovereign determination and decree. And we are not going to forget that because we're Calvinists. We're not going to forget it. That is what the scriptures teach as we understand the scriptures. So another eschatological dimension to this faith is its predestinating character. Now, what is the method of our author? His method 
is redemptive historical. That is, he is looking back over the Old Testament history. And he is focusing on individuals in that history. So, this is the history of the redemption of these individuals by faith, particularly by faith in its eschatological aspect. So, this is a redemptive historical paradigm or outline. This is his method. Now, we use the term biblical theological as a synonym for that method. Biblical theological simply means we're looking at the Bible theologically in terms of it historical redemptive outworking. Now, the vocabulary may seem awkward, but the point is obvious. You can see it in the 39 verses of this chapter, 40 verses of this chapter. Our author is tracing out the gift of God's grace, the grace gift of God, namely faith, faith in its eschatological facet through the history of the Old Testament. And he selects individuals who demonstrate this pattern, who demonstrate this aspect of faith, who illustrate this eschatological aspect of faith. Where does he begin? Where does he begin? With creation, verse 3. Where does he end? Where does he end? Verse 32. And I don't want to deny that he uh, makes it to the new covenant, but he ends with the prophets. All right. So he begins with creation. He ends with the prophets. He is covering the Old Testament canon. That is from Genesis to the prophets, to Malachi, or to the end of the prophets. Now, why does he do that? Why does he follow this sequence of beginning with creation and bring it all the way down to the prophets? This is a chronological scheme, isn't it? He's actually beginning with the earliest, and he's bringing it down to the latest. The, la- the last part of Revelation in the Old Testament is the prophets. The first part of Revelation in the Old Testament is creation. Then he works through, sequentially, he works through an historical order. He works through the history of redemption. Why does he do this? It has to do with the first chapter, he says that God in the past spoke through, through the prophets. And he shows how these prophets all were looking forward to, all these people were looking forward to the... Uh, But here he's specifically going through from creation down to chapter one. He only gives a kind of broad overview. I mean, he summarizes everything else 
everything in terms of he spoke in time past. Now he's actually going through individual uh, uh, eras of history. Because he's a gardener. Because he's a rose gardener. He loves to plant roses, just like I do. How many of you like to plant roses? Come on, Kay. Would you put your hand up? I know I've seen your roses. I wish Loretta were here. Just as it is for us, he brings the Old Testament. He brings out that the Old Testament is more than just a book. That it is the history of redemption. It is the history of redemption. But why did I say he's a gardener? Kay, why did I say he's a gardener? Because the story grows. It starts little and it grows and grows. Good. Just like your rose bud starts as a little tiny bud. But then it begins to unfold. And the longer it blooms, the more beautiful it becomes. And finally it bursts out of the bud stage and gets into that unfolding thing. And then when it bursts out completely then it is gorgeous to behold. All right, so his pattern here is to unfold the progress of the budding, blossoming history of redemption. He begins with the history of redemption in the bud phase, all the way back at creation. And then he's going to show how the bud is opening up, becoming more and more more and more of a full bloom until we come to the prophets when its fullest bloom from the Old Testament standpoint is before us. All right, so the history of redemption is a progressive unfolding or blooming of the bud of redemption. And as we follow this bud, in terms of these stages, we're going to see more and more and more of the riches of this blossoming bud. It is not only progressive, but it is organic. Now, that's not like organic milk or organic cauliflower or whatever. Organic here means that it is an organism, that is, It's completely united in an organic progression. It is continuous in that the very faith that is granted to Abel is the same faith that's been granted to you. Only in Abel, it's in the bud stage. In you, it's in the blossom stage. But it is the very same organic element, organic aspect. This aspect is progressive in that it unfolds, but it is not progressive in the sense that it contradicts itself. It doesn't contradict itself. You can't have that uh, rosebud become a zinnia blossom somewhere in the process of uh, unfolding. No, it is still a rosebud. It continually, organically unfolds in a progression of unfolding beauty and glory. It's the same thing with the Old Testament. We're not looking like the liberals for contradictions here when we use this word progressive. We're not looking for people that were smarter than other people when we use this word progressive. We're not saying that the Jews didn't get bright until they went into Babylonian captivity and then they invented all of their myths. They invented all their fairy tales and they put them back into the past. Moses is a fairy tale. They're even arguing today that David is a fairy tale. 
<clears throat> Liberals like to do that kind of stuff. That's what they mean by progression. That's what they mean by progressive revelation. That's not what we mean by it. We're talking about the unfolding of the same revelation now being unpacked. It's all there in a nutshell in Genesis 3.15. But it's going to be unpacked. It's going to be unpacked in Genesis 4. It's going to be unpacked in Genesis 5. It's going to be unpacked in Genesis 6 through 9. It's going to be unpacked in Genesis 12 through 50. It's going to be unpacked in Exodus 1 to 20. It's going to be unpacked all the way down through the history of that. It's going to be unpacked. You're going to see more and more and more of the redemptive power of God in history as it progressively unfolds as a living, vital organism. And that means that Abel is plugged into an organism. Same organism that Enoch is plugged into. Same organism that Noah is plugged into. Same organism as Abraham is plugged into. And so on we go. And it is into that organism that you have been plugged in these last days in Christ Jesus. Because, of course, he is the center of the bud. He is the core kernel of that bud. From the time it was first displayed, back in Genesis 3.15 in the Garden of Eden, he is at the center of that bud going to become blossom. So Christ at the center of this organic, progressive unfolding of redemption is going to be present to Abel, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to the judges, to David, to the prophets, and last of all, as those born out of due time, to you and to me. All right, so we're getting a number of insights into why our writer is doing what he is doing. He is interested in the eschatological facet of faith. He is interested in it as it is displayed through the history of redemption. He is interested in it as its core object is manifest in the faith of those eschatological pilgrims of old. Will you see Jesus in Abel's life? Will you see Jesus in Enoch's life? Or will you, like the dispensationalists, cut him off from a period of the previous history of redemption and say that salvation is with respect to a specific commandment of obedience to God's will in that era, which is to make Christ of no effect? I hope you will not do that because the writer of Hebrews is not doing that. He has been talking for 10 chapters about the surpassing excellence of Christ Jesus. Do you think he's forgotten himself when he comes to chapter 11? And all of a sudden he's going to put Jesus on the shelf until he gets beyond the Old Testament into chapter 12? Or what does he say in chapter 12, verse 2? Fixing our eyes steadfastly upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Whose faith? The faith of Persons in chapter 11. He is the object of their faith. Oh, Denison, you're insane again. How do you get Jesus out of the story of Cain and Abel? Well, he was part of the Trinity. 
No, you're right, but it's even more wonderful than that. All right, you get the point. You understand what we're driving at here. We're driving at a way of looking at Scripture. We're, in fact, talking about a philosophy of revelation, a way of thinking about revelation in the Bible. Redemptive historically, yes. Progressively, yes. Organically, yes. But Christocentrically and eschatologically. Why? Why are we thinking that way? Because we've learned from the epistle of the Hebrews. The writer of the Hebrews has taught us to think that way. If we don't learn from the epistle of the Hebrews, then why, why have it in the Bible? Why come on Thursday nights to listen to Dennis and Yak on about insanity? In other words, if this is what we're reading here, then this is a principle, this is a hermeneutic, this is a way of interpreting the Bible that must inform every place of the Bible that we interpret. If he is telling us how to philosophically think about interpreting the history of redemption, every place we read the history of redemption from Genesis to Revelation has to be thought of in these terms. You want to learn where your hermeneutic comes from? Then study the epistle to Hebrews. It will revolutionize the way you think about the Bible. You will stop using the Bible as a do this, do that handbook. You will stop using the Bible as a, well, I need a devotional today to get me over the hump and to help me cope with work or whatever. He will make you fix your eyes steadfastly on Jesus. That's how you will cope. That's how you will handle the ups and downs of your life. You will keep your eyes fixed steadfastly on Jesus because every time you read the Bible, whether it's from Genesis to Proverbs to the Song of Solomon to to Obadiah to Jude, you're going to keep your eyes fixed steadfastly on Jesus because that's what you've learned. The Bible has taught you that. The writer of the Bible has taught you that. God himself has taught you that through that writer. Ah, oh, Dennison, you find Jesus under every rock in the scriptures. Uh, <clears throat> Luke 24. Jesus, after his resurrection, taught his disciples, beginning with Moses and the prophets and the writings, and showed them that he was in it all. I think I'm in good company. I don't think I've got any other option. Because if God spoke in sundry times and divers manners in time past, but then has spoken in these last days, it was in every instance he was speaking about his son, wasn't he? Isn't the Bible about Christ either coming or come? Isn't that what the Bible is about? Then therefore everything in the Bible is about him, whether I can figure it out or not. Whether I crack my head over Proverbs or not, which I'm reading through right now and cracking my head over. Whether I can figure it out or not is not God's fault. It's my fault. I'm just too stupid. I don't get it. I'm not looking right. I got to do more homework. I got to think more. And if the Lord tarries, then down the road, somebody someday is going to come 
and crack the code on the book of Proverbs and show us why it is eschatological and Christocentric. I am I will rejoice on that day. If I'm glory, I'll rejoice in that day. Because I'm still cracking my head on Proverbs. Nonetheless, he's there. It is there. Even in what appears to be the most practical wisdom of the Old Testament. Christ is there in a way which we have not yet clearly perceived. But nonetheless, there are other places where it's very easy to see it. So, we will use the easy parts to help us with the difficult parts. All right. Now, let's take a look at the eras of the history of redemption, which our writer lays out for us. We've already alluded to some of this already. But he begins with creation, as we pointed out in verse 3. And he moves on to what we call the primeval era. Now, the primeval era is the earliest age of redemptive history. And it refers to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, that term primeval is not pejorative. In other words, it's not intended to mean, uh, you know, stupid or Neanderthal or something like that. It's a reference to the first age of redemptive revelation. And our author folk of sites, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, as members of that primeval age. Now, he next moves on to the age of the patriarchs. Now, that is an age we're more familiar with because those are the familiar names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I should add Sarah to Abraham's name there. Incidentally, I don't want to leave her out. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Following the patriarchal era, and we're now at the end of the book of Genesis, we come to the Mosaic era. And Moses and the Exodus are indicated in Hebrews 11, which takes us all the way through Exodus to Deuteronomy. Then he moves on to Joshua, Jericho, and Rahab, to the era of the conquest. So he leaves out the wandering in the wilderness. He has already featured that in chapters 3 and 4 of his book. I think he has also done that in chapter 6 and chapter 10, as I pointed out in this series. So he's not going to repeat what he has already emphasized. He's looking at these transitional eras, and Joshua is a transitional figure. He takes them into the promised land. We leave the age of Moses behind, and we enter into the age of the theocracy. The theocracy continues at the end of Joshua's era with the judges, and he lists four of them, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samson. Arguably, Samuel could be included here. His name is on the list, but you notice that he places Samuel after David. We'll have to 
grapple with that order when we come to that verse, but we have moved beyond the judges when we have the name David. We are obviously into the era of the monarchy, the era of the kings of Israel. And that will then take us finally into the era of the prophets, because the prophets will be active in the era of the monarchy and beyond. In fact, the prophets will take us right up to the New Testament period. They will take us up to the last revelation in the Old Testament, namely the revelation around 400 B.C. under Malachi. And we'll have the intertestamental period of silence when God does not speak. He didn't speak for 400 years between the time Joseph went down into Egypt and Moses was called. So there are kind of 400 year gaps on either side of the Old Testament. Gap on the side before the exodus from Egypt and gap on the other side after the new exodus back to Jerusalem after the return from the Babylonian captivity. God is silent. No revelation. No miracles. And then comes the age of Christ, the apostles and the gospels. All right. So those are the major building blocks of the eras of the history of redemption. The primeval age, the patriarchal age, the age of Moses, the age of the conquest, the age of the judges, the age of the monarchy, and the age of the prophets. That really covers all the bases, brings us right down to the gate or the door of the New Testament era. All right, now in verse 3, he begins with creatio ex nihilo. It's a Latin phrase. Anybody know enough Latin or anybody anybody uh, see enough there that they can figure out what it means? Out of nothing. Creation out of nothing, correct. Now, the verse is an excellent explanation of that idea. We understand that what is seen was not made by what is visible. In other words, God created out of nothing. That is, the things that we see, the something that we see, is not responsible for the creation of itself. That which we do not see, namely God himself, created what we do see. This is the Edelweiss uh, interpretation. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever will, you fans of the sound of music. This something didn't come from something. This something came from nothing, okay? Because nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever will. So if this something came, then it came from someone or something. This is what this verse is really saying. So it doesn't mean that nothingness is a something. It means that in the void of nothingness, God speaks the word. And in Genesis 1, he speaks the word, the fiat of day one, the fiat of day two. God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And it was. He wasn't using any stuff. He wasn't using any eternal matter. We're not Platonists. He wasn't taking stuff off the shelf that he had stored all the way back there on the shelves of eternity. There was nothing there. Nothing there but God himself. In the beginning, God. Before the beginning, nothing but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God. All right, so how do we then discuss this creation out of nothing as 
a facet of the eschatological aspect of faith. All right, creation presupposes a creator. Before creation, a creator. Before the created arena, an uncreated arena. And what do we call that uncreated arena before creation? Come on, students. What's Denison's insane favorite word? The eschatological arena. All right, this uncreated arena, which is the arena of God himself, is the eschaton. It's eternity past, isn't it? Oh, but you think eschaton is eternity future. But eternity is always there, isn't it? The eschaton is already there. So you think of it as future, and yet as it is future, as God is future, is he eternally future? Is he eternally past? Exactly. He's eternally present. He is eternally always. So in other words, there is an eternal aspect to God's own dimension of existence, which precedes creation and will succeed creation. When creation is annihilated and burned up to a cinder in a fervent heat, God will still be there and that eschaton will still exist. It's the real world. All right, so before creation, there is eschatology. Eschatology precedes creation, as God himself precedes creation. There is an arena with God himself in it that is prior to the created arena with us in it. Therefore, to say that God precedes creation is to say that eschatology precedes creation. Before the created arena, the God arena, the eschaton. To that uncreated God arena, creation was oriented at its genesis. He creates in order to orient that creation to himself. He creates for his own glory. That's the reason our chief end is to glorify him. Even creation is to reflect, to declare his glory as you and I are to reflect or declare his glory. We're not adding any glory to God. He is all glorious perfectly. You can't add any glory to a perfectly glorious being. But you can reflect it. You can declare it. You can praise it. That's what creation itself was to do. It was to reflect God's glory. The uncreated is to be praised and glorified through the created. That means that creation was not intended to be eschatological in itself. The creation, the created order was never intended to be eternal in itself. It was never intended to be eschatological per se. It was intended to point to, point beyond itself, to point to the eschatological arena. The creation at the beginning was to point to the creator. So if it passes away, if creation is decreated, the eschatological arena abides as God abides. 
God and the eschaton are prior to creation and history. It is fundamental to the eschatological aspect of faith in the creation. Because you see, faith puts you in possession of the creator who is permanent, everlasting, eschatologically abiding as this creation is not and was never intended to be. Well, the writer skips over Adam and Eve. He moves from the creation to Cain and Abel. What's the matter? Wasn't he reading his Bible carefully? Did his Bible leave out Genesis 3? No. He's very much aware of sin, which comes out of the rebellion of Adam and Eve and enters the history of redemption through their iniquity. Abel's offering, which he specifies in verse 4, Abel's offering is an offering for sin. Noah's condemnation of the world is a condemnation of the world for sin. Moses sprinkling the blood of the Passover is a sprinkling of the blood of the Passover for sin. The sin of the hardness of heart of Pharaoh and Egypt. The Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea for sin. Thinking that they could do battle with the Almighty. The writer is very much aware of the power and effect of sin even after the beginning of the creation. So he focuses his attention on sinful persons who were drawn by faith out of the arena of sin into the arena of salvation. Those of this creation corrupted by sin brought into a new creation in which righteousness dwells. And this new creation is the breaking in of the eschatological arena, God's own arena of grace and forgiveness and the possession of heaven. The breaking in of an eschatological new creation As Paul says, a new creation in Christ Jesus. But this breaking in of this new creation in Christ is from the foundation of the world. Prior to the original creation and eschatological uncreation. So that this protological creation requires an eschatological creation. This protological uncreation, namely which comes by the way of the fall, requires an eschatological new creation by way of salvation. Faith is believing in creation ex nihilo by God who possesses that God, the faith possesses that God of the eschaton who is the creator. And when the creation is undone by man's sin, then that faith in an eschatological creator grasps the substance, the evidence of a new creation 
in the one who is God incarnate and creator of all. All things were made by him and apart from him was nothing made that was made. That faith in that eschatological new creation in Christ Jesus possesses the new creator of the uncreated sinful world. All right, so that faith in its eschatological aspect here in verse 3 directed to creation and creator possesses that creator of a new creation, the eschatological arena of God the creator father, God the creator son, and God the creator spirit. Triune God in his arena is possessed by faith in the creator. All right, for your outline, that blank there on your page, under verse 3, eschatology precedes creation. The protological creation leads to the eschatological creation, and the protological fallen creation leads to the eschatological new creation. One more point here. A genesis implies a terminus. A beginning implies an end. A genesis implies a cysosis. Cysosis. All right, I'm paraphrasing a Greek word that appears in Hebrews 12:26. It's the Greek word for shake. It's the word for a seismic shaking, okay, seismologist and seismology, seismic quakes, seismic rumbles, okay, come from the Greek word sio, siso rather. And so I'm coining a word which kind of rhymes with Genesis. If we have a beginning Genesis, we're going to have an ending sisosis, a shaking. Now, there was a destruction of the world in verse 7 on the time of Noah. In other words, creation in verse 3 is balanced by the destruction of that created order in verse 7. That will not occur at the terminus. That will not occur at the cysosis. That will not occur because according to 2 Peter 3, 10 and 12, the earth and the created order will be dissolved in a fervent heat. Hebrews 12, as we will see when we get to that chapter, describes this seismic shaking of what can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. What cannot be shaken is the eschatological arena. That alone is the only arena that cannot be shaken. Every other aspect of creation can be shaken. It can be seismically quaked and crushed and dissolved as Peter says, with a fervent heat, melted away. All right, so the point is that in the history of redemption, the undoing of creation by reversing itself physically has been renewed in the new creation of the new heavens and new earth in Genesis 9. That will not happen again. 
the new heavens and new earth that will be before us is symbolic and metaphorical language for what will appear or what already, what will be the entrance into the full eschatological dimension which has been eternally extant ever since God himself as triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been extant. It is into that arena that the, the moral or voluntary agents of the creation will go in glorification or in humiliation and condemnation. Which brings us to verse 4. East of Eden. The bracket in Genesis 3.24 and Genesis 4.16, East of Eden. The narrative bracket that surrounds the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel at the Oriental Gate of the entrance to the paradise of God. And at that Oriental Gate, east of Eden, is a flaming sword barring the way to the tree of life. No penetration beyond that barrier to the tree of life unless you can endure the sword and the flame. No way of open access to that tree of life unless you can undergo the knife and endure the fire. No way back. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice or more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Because Abel brought a victim that would go under the knife and through the flame for him as his substitute. And Cain brought dead vegetables. And Cain said, my dead vegetables are good enough for God. Whereas Abel said, I am not good enough for God. I need a substitute. I need the lifeblood of a victim like my lifeblood poured out as my life should be poured out unto death for I deserve death consumed in flame as I deserve to be consumed in flame as I deserve to be killed by that sword and burned up by that flame at the entrance east of Eden to the garden of God. I deserve to be killed at that gate because I have no right to that tree of life. 
But my substitute, my substitute will take the knife blow that I deserve. And my substitute will pour out its life blood unto death as I deserve. And my substitute will be consumed in a holocaust completely burned up in fire as I deserve. And I will say, with my lamb, as I offer it upon the altar to my Lord, Lord, O Lord, my God, may this lamb prophesy the last lamb. May my first lamb Anticipate the last lamb. May this protological lamb which I give testify to the eschatological lamb slain from the foundation of the world. On that lamb I rest my faith. Because by faith I have been granted possession of that lamb even as I bring my lamb. You do see it, don't you? You do see it behind Abel's lamb, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Behind Abel's lamb, the lamb who was able to go under the knife, pour out his blood be consumed in the flame of the wrath of God and cover over your death sentence and your guilty soul. Abel possesses Christ the Lamb of God. That's the reason his sacrifice is called better, more excellent than Cain's, because it was. It wasn't the contemptuous offering of something that was dead. It was the sacrificial offering of something that had the blood of life in it, even as the blood of life coursed through him with the confession that he deserved what his lamb received. And that lamb, by faith in its heavenly power, and possession, that lamb would open the way to the tree of life for Abel. And by his death, Abel yet speaketh. Of what does he speak? 
of the eschatological Lamb of God. He still witnesses and testifies to the Lamb for sinners slain. Because Abel possessed Christ afar off. That's the wonder of this eschatological aspect of faith. The future work of the Lamb of God dying on that cross brought forward, came forward to the soul of Abel even in that prime evil act of sacrificing For the scriptures focus on this act because they want you to know the difference between Cain and Abel, the difference between contempt and eschatological faith, the difference between one who clings to a living sacrifice, a living offering, because he knows he deserves death, not life, and one who sneers at God and murders his blood brother because he is as contemptuous of his flesh and blood as he is contemptuous of God himself. Let us have none of this nonsense about the fact that farmers' offerings are equal to shepherds' offerings. That is rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Abel possessed Christ in his lamb. Because, you see, he knew the promise that the deliverer would come from the seed of the woman and would be bruised in delivering his people from the enemy of their soul. Any questions about the eschatological aspect of Abel's faith, the protological lamb and the eschatological lamb? It's in the book. It's in the story. Or else, Abel is just another religious person.